If you had to summarize the Christmas story with one word, what word would you choose? That's the question I came across this last week as I was reading Paul Tripp's Advent devotional. If you could summarize the Christmas story with one word, what word would you choose? It goes on to say, do you have a word in mind? Maybe you're thinking that it's not just possible to summarize the greatest story ever with just one word. It doesn't take paragraph after paragraph, filling volume after volume to communicate how God chose to respond to the outrageous rebellion of Adam and Eve and the subtle and not-so-subtle rebellion of everyone since. The single word that captures God's response to sin, even better than the word grace, is not a theological word. It's a name, and that name is Jesus. He goes on to say, The Lord of glory didn't choose to bask in his glory. Instead, he emptied himself, took the form of not just a man, but of a lowly servant. What humility. The humility of Jesus didn't end with his birth. It shaped the way he lived. He lived a humble, homeless life of daily service. The one whom creation was made to serve came not to be served, but to serve. We're going to unpack that very idea this day as we look at the Gospel of Mark Again, not particularly a Christmas story, but something that defines the very existence of Jesus and why he came to this world, not to be served, but to serve us. And as we worked our way through some key passages, thinking about Jesus and the implications of what he did for us, we've looked at how Jesus is, is the very God, as we sang earlier, who has come to us. God made low, taking on flesh and blood for us and for our salvation. So this week we're going to learn part of the reason why, as we look at one of the mission statements of Jesus. Verse 32, I'm sorry, let me start us off right here at verse 32. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was going to happen. Now here Jesus is about one week out from the crucifixion, and it tells us that they were going on the way to Jerusalem. Jesus was walking ahead of his disciples, and they were amazed. And there was a crowd following along who were told were afraid. And why is this the case? Well, Jesus had just had an encounter with a very rich man who asked what he must do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus said, go sell all that you have and give to the poor and come follow me. And that man was sad because he had great wealth. And he turned, instead of following Jesus, left Jesus. And so Jesus goes on and tells his disciples, children, how def- difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they said, well, Lord, we've, we've given up everything to follow you. And then Jesus tells them, many who are first will be last, and the last first. And so that word is ringing in their ears. And that encounter with that man who just left Jesus is very front and center in their minds. And so it's in that context that we're told that they're going on the way to Jerusalem. The disciples were amazed at what he was saying, and the people were afraid. Maybe they're afraid because of the implications of what Jesus had just said. Maybe it's because they're a little bit afraid of what's going to happen when Jesus finally hits Jerusalem. So they were amazed, and they were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was going to happen. So Jesus takes his twelve disciples to the side, and he says this, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. 
and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Now, everything that the disciples have been anticipating is culminating in this moment. They're coming to Jerusalem. And this is where they're expecting Jesus is going to reveal himself. And Jesus is going to reveal himself, but in ways that they were not expecting. And so Jesus says, see, we're going to Jerusalem. And he says, the Son of Man will. And it's almost like the disciples didn't hear anything else that came after him because they were excited about what is going to happen. They know that prophecy in the book of Daniel that said of this one who is described as the Son of Man, behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So Jesus said Jerusalem, and he said the Son of Man, and this is what's in their mind. At last, Jesus is going to be given the kingdom. He will take his power and he will reign, and that means the Romans are going to be kicked out, and they cannot wait. That's what's in their mind, even though Jesus said, I'm going to die. We're told in verse 35 that James and John, two of Jesus' closest disciples, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Isn't that a crazy question? (laughs) I don't know if my kids came up to me and said, Dad, we want you to do whatever we ask you to do. I am on my guard. (laughs) For them to, to, to not just come out and ask me, but to To pose the question that way means something outlandish is about to follow. As I was reflecting on this question this week and kind of the silliness of it, I was kind of struck by the thought, John, how many times have you approached Jesus like this? Jesus, I want you to do whatever I want you to do. Whatever I ask, that's what I want you to do. You don't do that, do you? Maybe this question isn't so crazy after all. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, these these two men known as the sons of thunder, come up to Jesus and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. That question seems very out of place considering what Jesus just told them, doesn't it? But surprisingly, Jesus said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. It seems like they're very tone deaf here, doesn't it? Jesus just said, look, we're going to go to Jerusalem. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed. He's going to be handed over to the religious leaders. They're going to hand him over to the Gentiles. He's going to be spit upon. He's going to be flogged. He's going to be beaten. He's going to be killed. Jesus, can you do something for me? Just just go ahead and say you're going to do whatever we want you to do. Can I sit at your right side or at your left side in the kingdom? They're very tone deaf at this moment. They're not getting what Jesus is saying. And Jesus responds to them saying, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am to be baptized? Now imagine if Jesus asked you this question. Wouldn't you want to 
know a few more details about what that means? <laughs> I certainly would. Are you able to drink the cup I am the drink? That was an ancient idiom that's far removed from us. But that's basically an indication that you're about to have a portion of something set before you, and you're to drink it to the dregs. This is usually in the context of suffering. This cup has been given to you. That's why Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane later this evening, or I'm sorry, later in the week on the evening that he was betrayed, will pray to the Father, Father, if it's your will, take this cup from me. But Jesus asked them, are you able to drink the cup I'm to drink? Or are you to be baptized with the baptism of which I am baptized? Can you do this? His baptism was his death, we learn later. And instead of asking him for clarification on what that might mean, they just said, we are able. Yes, we can do this. No problem, Jesus. Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Jesus says, in my kingdom, it is not for me to grant who will sit at my right hand and at my left hand. Just think about what that indicates. Jesus on the throne, and two people are on either side of him. Those must be very great people, right? What have they done to deserve such honor? Here, James and John want that honor to be given to them, so that when people look at Jesus, they see them on either side of him. Jesus says, it has already been prepared for people to sit at my right and my left. And when, they, when the ten heard it, that's the twelve disciples minus these two guys who were talking with Jesus. When the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Imagine if you were with those disciples there and you just heard what they had, the audacity to ask Jesus. Wouldn't you be a little bit upset too? <laughs> Crazy they would ask that. Crazy they would be jockeying for position and not including the rest of us, perhaps. Or maybe they just thought it was arrogant. So see these men just arguing, getting a tongue lashing by the other ten. Do you think that they learned their lesson? Do you think that the other ten would, would never have the audacity to think that they ought to be seated at the right hand or left hand of Jesus? Jesus called them to him and said to them, as he sees his disciples there bickering among themselves, arguing, no doubt heated. Think of that word indignant. They became indignant with them. What comes to your mind when you see someone who's indignant? Red-faced, loud voices. So Jesus calls his disciples to him and says to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them but it shall not be so among you. He's saying, when you look at the world and the people who have power in this world, they lord it over others. I think especially in this ancient context with Pilate and Herod and, and the emperor. They lord it over them. The great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. My disciples shall not desire power to lord it over others. It shall not be so among you. This is kind of an ancient way of, of saying what we would put, probably put in, in modern terms, to boss other people around. 
fact, as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about that time when my daughter, she's about seven years old, came into the room and just announced to everyone, whoever wanted to listen, I want to be queen so I can boss everyone around. And no doubt the disciples were thinking something along these lines. Man, if we had the power that would accrue to us sitting at the right hand and left hand of Jesus, that would be amazing. But Jesus says, look, it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And, and who would, whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. I think for, for many of us who follow Jesus for some time, we hear these words and they just kind of wash over us. It's one of those things that Jesus says, right? But let me just highlight those two words he uses. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. If you want to be great, you need to become a servant. And that word servant in that ancient world meant someone who was an awa- a waiter or an attendant. Someone who, whose job was to be a servant to others. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. That word slave in our context is, is loaded with a lot of baggage because of what happened in the early part of our, our founding of our nation. In the ancient world, uh, world, in the empire of Rome, it wasn't race-based slavery. People could be enslaved because they sold themselves into slavery to pay off debt. They could be enslaved to pay off or because they're victims of war. Um, it could be like an indentured servant, like we think of indentured servants, a bond servant, but it can also be used as a slave. So Jesus says to them, this should not be among you, but whoever would be great among you must become your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Friends, do you believe what Jesus is saying there? Let's note this important point. Jesus is not debunking the desire for greatness but only our definition of greatness. Jesus is not debunking our desire for greatness, but only our definition of greatness. We were designed to be great. Let me just remind you of what Psalm 8 says. The psalmist writes, When I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. And the psalmist is looking up at the night sky, contemplating the greatness of God and how in the world it can be the case that God would care for us. It's it's compounded by the fact that God not only cares for us, but he has crowned us with glory and honor. Those are royal terms, full of dignity. Think back to the creation of Adam and Eve. They're created to be vice regents, kings and queens working alongside God. So, my friends, we are created to be great. That's not the issue. The issue is our definition of greatness. So here's another important point. We are designed for greatness, but we naturally think that means people recognizing our greatness and serving us. And Jesus turns this notion inside out. To his disciples, who wanted to be recognized as great. He says, you've got it completely backwards. Think of what the Apostle Paul said. For those of you who have been a part of our study on Philippians, you'll know this verse because we just looked at it right before the Advent season. Paul, writing from prison to his friends living in the city of Philippi, said, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Isn't that one of the hardest things to do? Don't, don't you see an innate 
desire within you for other people to count you is more significant than themselves. I mean, if we're honest, there is that, that desire within each and every one of us. And here Paul, who learned from Jesus this very truth, wants his, his disciples, as well as us, to in humility count others more significant than, our, than ourselves. That means to have an excessive appreciation of other people's worth and value. And if you had an excessive appreciation of other people's worth and value, you would, you would serve them. It would be your delight. So Jesus says, whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Here Jesus, in rebuking his disciples, their desire for greatness, for their desire for power, says, look, I didn't even come for that. I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Think about this. Think about what we've been talking about over the last few weeks. God himself became human flesh, lived among us, moved into the neighborhood, as it were, to explain who he is, to live for us, to show us what it means to be a true human being, and to die for us. So if I could put it this way, I might say it like this. Jesus defined true greatness not by being served, but rather in becoming the greatest servant. That's what his disciples did not get in this moment. A week out from Jerusalem, a week out from Jesus dying. This is what they did not get. Jesus defined true greatness not by being served, but rather in becoming the greatest servant. So friends, when you think about Jesus being born this season, know that he was born for greatness. Make no mistake about that. He humbled himself to become our servant. I love the way Spurgeon put it, that great minister of Victorian England. He said, Jesus Christ was possessed of more true greatness in a stable than any other king ever possessed in a palace. Your king, the Lord Jesus Christ, when he was born powerless, at the mercy of others to care for him, in that moment he possessed more greatness than any other king ever possessed in any palace. Do you remember that quote from Paul Tripp that I began with? He said, the humility of Jesus didn't end with his birth. It shaped the way he lived. He lived a humble, homeless life of daily service. The one whom creation was made to serve came not to be served, but to serve. He would go on and say, it would have taken great, I love this, catch this. It would have taken great humility for Jesus to leave his rightful place as God and live a lavishly rich life on earth. But no human wealth or power could compare with his rightful place. Do you see what he's saying there? If Jesus humbled himself and came to earth and was recognized and lived as the greatest king of all time and hoarded wealth and servants around him, that would have been great humility on his part, considering the glory of heaven that he left. But he willingly emptied himself of all those rights and privileges. Because he didn't come for himself, he came for us. But his humility didn't even end with his humble servant's life. Jesus' humility carried him to the cross, 
without words or actions in his own defense. He humbly became the final sacrificial lamb, dying so that he would live. And so that's why Christians through the ages have recognized that Jesus was born to die. That's part of the greatness of our Savior, that he was born to die. And so when we think of Jesus coming not to be served, but to serve us, that's meant to grab hold of us. And it's meant to, to shape our life as well. If Jesus himself lived what is called a cruciform life, that is, his life took form of a crucifix and humbly serving, then ours should as well. The way Paul put it was like this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Here, the Apostle Paul underscores the fact that Jesus, in his glory, humbled himself, emptied himself of the rights to be recognized, worshipped as he ought, in order to become a servant for us and for our salvation. He took that form of a servant. And then Paul tells us, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Where am I going with this, my friends? Simply this, Jesus was destined for greatness, but that greatness took the path of becoming the greatest servant of all. And we're called to follow in his footsteps. So, as I started to say a while ago, remember how the disciples became indignant at James and John because of what they asked of Jesus? They're about to enter Jerusalem. Where they think Jesus is going to be crowned king. And he was, just not in the way they thought. And at the end of that week, a week out from the incident we just read about, Jesus has one last final meal with his disciples. It's the Passover meal, where they celebrated and recognized and remembered that great act of redemption, which God liberated their people from slavery in Egypt. He's having this dinner with them, and he now redefines that dinner around himself. He said, this bread is my body, which is given for you. Take and eat. He took the cup, and he said, this blood is my blood which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink. And they ate that bread, and they drank that cup as Jesus explained to them that he was about to give their life for him. In the moments that followed, Jesus also indicated that one of them was about to betray him. And they get into an argument about who might be the betrayer. Now think about this. The disciples have been with each other for 12 years, Right? Who would have the audacity at this moment when Jesus is about to be recognized as king? Who would have the audacity to betray him at this moment? And so we're told in the Gospel of Luke that they began to question one another. Which of them it could be who was going to do this? And a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Can you believe that? Just a week before... Jesus 
had talked to them about this desire to be recognized as great and said, you've got to become a servant of all. That's who's truly great. And now they get in an argument the night that Jesus is going to be betrayed about which of them is the greatest. The patience of Jesus, right? And he said to them in words that echo what he said just a week earlier in the text we just looked at. The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as the one who serves. Again, Jesus, as he's about to give himself for them, is emphasizing that if you want to be considered great, you've got to become a servant. He's about to illustrate that with his own life. And he follows that up by saying, for who is greater, the one who reclines at table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. Scholars believe that it's at this moment when Jesus got up from the table, took out his outer robe, picked up a water basin and a towel, and began to wash the feet of his disciples. What must have this been like in that moment? Can you imagine being among those 12 disciples of Jesus, arguing about which one is the greatest, trying to make your case that you are the greatest? And here is Jesus, arguably the greatest person who has ever lived, worthy of all worship and adoration, and everything we could give to him, quietly gets up and bows before you, to do what only servants do, and that is to wash your feet. This is the way the Apostle John put it in his gospel. Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And during supper, this is the the Passover supper, when the devil had already put it in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given, him, had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin, began to wash his disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around them. He said to Simon Peter, or I'm sorry, he came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? In other words, what are you doing, Lord? This isn't what you're supposed to do for me. Jesus answered him, What I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Then John tells us, When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garment and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? What has Jesus done to them? He has just demonstrated an excessive appreciation of their value and worth. He humbled himself and washed their feet, the king of glory stooping to wash their dirty, stinky feet. Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. You who are just arguing about which of you is the greatest, 
If you're really the greatest, you would be washing each other's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I've done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. You hear what Jesus is saying? He says, men, you are not greater than I am. You are not greater than I am. And if I, your master, your teacher, has humbled myself to serve you, you ought to do this with one another. Blessed are you if you actually do this. Of course, he would go on. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And he did so by taking the form of a servant. I wonder what his disciples thought in that moment when Jesus was crucified and hung on that cross with the words, King of the Jews, placed above him, which in their minds meant the king of the world. Here's the great one. Was serving them. So, my friends, we are born for greatness, but we cannot become greater than our Lord Jesus Christ, who demonstrated his greatness by becoming a servant for all. Jesus was born for greatness. You and I are born for greatness, but we cannot define greatness apart from Jesus, who demonstrated his greatness by becoming a servant to you and to me. So let's just wrap this up in a few points of application. First of all, let's stand in awe of the King of Kings who became not only the friend of sinners, but also the servant of servants. As we look at this passage, and Jesus talks about becoming a servant of all, becoming a slave of all, and seeing what Jesus did for us, the reason he was born, is there anything else we can do but stand in awe of him? We sang rightfully a while ago these beautiful words. O come, all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant. O come ye, O come ye to Bethlehem. Come and adore him, born the king of angels. O come, let us adore him. O come, let us adore him. O come, let us adore him. Christ the Lord. And it is right for us to adore him because he is the Lord of lords, the King of kings, the friend of sinners, and the servant of servants. We've all heard of the hymn, O Come, All Ye Faithful. But have you heard of the hymn, O Come, All You Unfaithful? I just told about this hymn this past week by some friends and had to go listen to it. It's amazing. It's be a good one for us to listen to during the Christmas season. It goes like this. O come, all you unfaithful, come. Weak and unstable, come. No, you are not alone. O come, barren and waiting ones. Weary of praying, come. See what your God has done. Christ is born. Christ is born. Christ is born for you. O come, bitter and broken. Come with fears unspoken. Come, taste of his perfect love. 
O come, guilty and hiding ones. There is no need to run. See what your God has done. He's the lamb who was given, slain for our pardon. His promise is peace for those who believe. So come, though you have nothing, come. He is the offering, come. See what your God has done. And it ends with a chorus. Christ is born. Christ is born. Christ is born for you. My friends, it is right for us to adore the Lord Jesus Christ. Whether we've been faithful or whether we've been unfaithful. Whether we have great faith or whether we wish we had more. Christ has come for us. He was born for us. Here's the second point of application. Let's prioritize true greatness by becoming the greatest servants we can be. No, seriously. Let's prioritize true greatness by becoming the greatest servants we can be. You see, Jesus humbled himself by becoming a lowly servant, and this is our high calling too. Jesus humbled himself by becoming a lowly servant. And friends, this is our high calling too. Remember that phrase that Jesus used? I'm among you as one who serves. What if this became the cry of your heart? What if you went through your day thinking that I'm among these people as one who serves? How would that change things? How that puts you in tune with the true greatness that God has designed you to have and to live out and to be a blessing to others. Do you remember what Jesus said? For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done for you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, and you do, blessed are you if you do them. So let's prioritize true greatness by becoming the greatest servants that we can be. And I know someone here is thinking this. I feel like all I do is serve and nobody notices or cares. And let me just say, I know some of you are great servants. I've seen it in your life. I've seen the way that you've served at church. I've seen the way that you've served in this community. I am very proud of you, but my opinion really doesn't matter that much. Jesus sees and Jesus notices everything you do. Do you remember what he said to his disciples one time? He says, whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. You can't even give a cup of cold water to someone without Jesus seeing that, recognizing true greatness at work in your life. And he will reward you for that. Someone else says, I, I don't even know where to begin in serving others. Well, first of all, meditate on the servant's heart of Jesus and, and beg God to create that very servant heart within you. That's the very beginning place. But let me give you something very practical as well. Learn to ask questions like, how can I help? What do you need help with today? Let me tell you, husbands and wives, this will radically change your marriage if you learn how to do this with one another. 
something shifted in my life and Heather's life a number of years ago where we just, by God's grace, started doing this with one another. And, and, and it's almost like sometimes we have a competition of, of how we can outserve one another. And that has made our relationship so much more beautiful and much, much more sweet. Single folks, let me encourage you to ask your roommates, ask your friends, hey, what do you need help with? How can, how can I help you out today? I'm probably going to say, oh, I, I got it. But just lean into that. Say, no, no, no. Really, I, I want to help you out today. How can I lift your burdens? Friends, if you do this at work, if you do this with your employees, if you do this with your employer, you are getting in touch with the true greatness that you are created to have. You are walking in the footsteps of Jesus, who became a servant. And so, my friends, what if one of the reasons God has given you the gift of Jesus is because he wants to work a deep, Christ-like humility in your life? That is, he wants to work a Christ-like servant heart deep within your life. What if in giving you Jesus, you're meant to follow in his footsteps by becoming a servant of all? What if in giving you the gift of Jesus, God wants to really, truly make you great, but that path to greatness looks like the path that Jesus followed, where you're called to die to yourself, that he might exalt you. My friends, we can become no greater that when we walk in the footsteps of Jesus, the greatest servant of all, who came not to be served, but to serve. So what if that became the way you lived? What if, what if the life of Jesus and the death of Jesus so began to form you, so began to work in you, that you began to have that very same heartbeat, not to be served, but to serve? As James, the brother of Jesus, no doubt learned from him, said, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Amen. Mercy Hill Church, may you be humbled by the descent of Christ, and may you rise to true greatness by blessing others in your service to them.